1: the three ways, the mystic, the gnostic, and the yogi. This is a continuation of a lecture we gave previously on the nature of uh, what we denominated as four paths. We talked about fakirism, we talked about monasticism, yoga, and the gnostic path, gnosticism. We explained previously how These paths individually by themselves, the first three, the fakir, the monk, and the yogi, are incipient. They are deficient in themselves. These previous paths only develop one aspect of the psyche and not at the exclusion of the others. The fakir only develops willpower over the body to dominate instinct by lying on a bed of nails, sleeping in the, in the storm, to the, sleeping under the weather, and trying to dominate the physical body, thinking that it is a way to God. We also discuss how the monk, through prayer, develops the heart, but at the exclusion of the mind and the motor center, our instinctuality, our sexuality, etc. And then we talk about the yogi who only studies and develops knowledge of the mind who performs pranayama and exercises to develop mind. So we discuss how those paths by themselves are inefficient, and that we need to follow a synthetic teaching, a synthetic path, which is the Gnostic path. The Gnostic path incorporates all three. Now in this lecture, we're going to explain how there are really three ways in the positive sense by which we walk this path, by which we attain union with our innermost our inner God. So on the left we have, or in these images we have Christ, the Master Aberramento teaching and uh, performing works. So he was uh, teaching the multitudes on the left as a mystic. In the middle we have Jesus as the Gnostic who is uh, assisting Mary Magdalene. We have on the right... Uh, Master Jesus the Christ, he's being tempted by Shatan, the demon, his mind in the wilderness. So this lecture really is, uh, we're going to explain how the path of mysticism, Gnosticism, and yoga are an integral science. So previously we discussed how fakirism, uh, monasticism, and yoga by themselves are inefficient. They're not complete. We're going to explain the best of these systems and how they apply to the Gnostic path, how they apply to our work. And this lecture really is about one quote that the Master Samael and Vior gave in a book called Igneous Rose. Christ taught three ways in order to reach union with the innermost, our inner Buddha, our inner God. When he was preaching to the multitudes, when he was mystically exalted, he showed us the way of Ramakrishna campus and francis of assisi this is the path of anthony of padua and teresa of jesus or avila we could say this is the mystical path when christ was walking with magdalene the repented prostitute when he was among publicans and sinners fishermen and wine drinkers he showed us the gnostic path when he retired to the solitude of the desert for 40 days and 40 nights he then taught the way of oriental yoga. The seven rays of cosmic evolution are synthesized in these three ways that the Nazarene showed. So uh, to elaborate, we have this image of the human being in this graphic with the symbol of the Holy Eight which is the circuitry of energies and the, inner, the makeup of our inner constitution this explains these three paths in synthesis and how they really are one. So we explain how the path of yoga develops the intellect. We have the path of the monk, which develops the heart. Mysticism. And then we have the sexual brain, which is uh, or the sexual center, which is Gnostic in, in its totality. Fakirism, we explain, is only the work of movement and instinct. Now, we talk about in uh, esotericism how we have three brains, three centers. Intellect, emotion, and motor instinctive sexuality. We synthesize the last three, movement, instinct, and sex, because they really constitute um, the field of action within our psyche. So the path of the fakir only develops instinct to dominate the sensations of the body. Whereas the Gnostic is very different and works to control instinct, motion, in conjunction with sexual energy. So in relation to the three brains, the three paths we are explaining in synthesis, the path of yoga, the path of the yogi develops the mind, which we need, we need in our work. We need also to develop mysticism, following the path of the monk, in harmony with the other centers. We also need to develop... Uh, the sexual center, the sexual brain, through the Gnostic path.
2: Can can an individual accomplish that without the belief of God?
1: Yes. Because we don't believe in anything. We seek to know. So to think something is true or to think something is not true, that's intellectual or emotional. But to really know something with certainty is to have gnosis. Therefore, there's certain things that I might believe in, but there are many things that I know for fact from my experience. By working with these three paths, do
2: you think there's a benefit if you do have a true belief in God?
1: Blessed are those who believe, yet who do not see. For in their belief, they will work, like Master Jesus taught. And by following the three paths of yoga, mysticism, and Gnosticism, then we come to know God directly. Now, we're going to elaborate on this in relation to the mystical path but in order to explain this lecture we need to understand the three brains because uh, as we see in this image we have three centers and that usually in the field of psychological self-observation in the beginning it's very difficult to ascertain from where thoughts come or where emotions emerge how do sensations arise these three aspects of ourselves constitute one unity as symbolized by the Holy Eight. So this symbol is a symbol of the infinite, meaning that God is within us. is infinite. In order to understand God, we need to know how our three brains function and how to develop them positively.
2: So it's like a channel. You're trying to fine-tune that channel.
1: Yes. And that channel is is developed precisely by working with mind, with emotion, or heart, and with sexuality. Or the yoga, the mystic, and the Gnostic paths. So in this image, we have Christ who is mystically exalted. And it's important to note that um, when we talk about mysticism, what the term actually means. The word mysticism comes from mystery or mysterion in Greek, which originates the root, from the root word main, which means to close one's eyes. Meaning to close one's physical eyes to the exterior world to really become reflective. And this relates to mystikos, which means initiate, somebody who begins a new way of being. Because if we don't know how to close our first our physical eyes to the exterior world, and then if we don't learn how to close the illusory eyes of our perception to illusion, then we cannot know God. For it's to say it's in the voice of the silence by Uh, Scripture translated by Blavatsky. Before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to all illusion. And we talk many times about this term mysticos, mystery, mysterion, uh, mysticism. Because genuine mysticism is, uh, is establishing a new way of being in this moment. So as some island viewer states, initiation is life itself. Lived intensely with rectitude and with love. So if we're not paying attention and we're not being intense in our efforts to self-observe, it means that we're asleep. It means that we need to continue to remember our being. To observe our three brains. And to learn to receive the impressions of life in a new way. That's what it means to close one's eyes to illusion. It doesn't mean that we ignore things. It means that we cease to perceive life as we previously perceived it. And that occurs here and now. Meaning that we forget the past. We don't think about the future. We close our eyes to all illusion and we really just focus on this moment. Because we need to be the child of this moment. So I'd like to quote for you some of the teachers mentioned in that quote I mentioned. The first is, is Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna where he explains the path of mysticism and uh, the nature of belief in, uh, implicitly. He was a great yogi, a great master, highly venerable, a great initiate who practiced sexual magic with his wife. He gave a very profound doctrine that we're going to cite here. And uh, we're going to quote, in relation to the mystical path, some of those teachers that Samael and Viar mentioned. So in relation to the mystical path, we, we need to really develop the heart. Because most of us are dead emotionally. Where it's very difficult to feel a genuine inspiration in our, in our psyche towards God. To overcome those uh, negative influences in our mind. This is why we began the, the lecture with that prayer, the Pater Noster, in Latin. In order to invoke that energy in the heart. Because if any of us need anything, more, most of all, it's to develop the heart. Which is why we begin with the mystical path. Because if the heart is pure, then we will know God. If it is impure, we will not know God. And we will suffer. This is why uh, Prophet Muhammad taught in the Hadith, the Muslim oral tradition, there is a polish for everything that removes rust. And there is also a polish for the heart. And that is Dikir, the, the remembrance of God. So he taught Muhammad that the path of jihad is the monasticism of the, of the Muslim. So uh, jihad is the war against our animal desires. It is the struggle against our mind, which we're going to explain in the path of yoga. And so uh, Muhammad was explaining how the path of the monk is the path of striving, because jih- Mushahida means striving. They translate it as holy war, but it really means to strive to make effort against one's ego. The mystical prayer, that's
3: the prayer, right?
1: Yes. And we're explaining and with all of this, we're explaining the positive aspect of these. Not the uh, not these past practice exclusively alone, but how they all integrate. And so all of these are really synthetic, they apply to each other and they overlap. So in the beginning all of us struggle to know God. We want to have that experience where we communicate with a master or with our being, and so there are four stages that Ramakrishna explains on the path of mysticism or the path of God vision. Because as we explained, the mysticism means to close one's uh, fleshly eyes to illusion, but to open our spiritual uh, spiritual sight. So somebody asked the master Ramakrishna, "Sir, what is the meaning of the realization of God? What do you mean by God vision?" How does one attain it? He stated, according to the Vaishnavas, the aspirants and the seers of God may be divided into different groups. These are the pravartaka, the sadaka, the siddha, and the siddha of the siddha. He who has just set foot on the path may be called a pravartaka. He may be called a sadaka who has, for some time, been practicing spiritual disciplines such as worship, japa, meditation, and uh, for your information, japa means mantra recitation, and the chanting of God's names and glory. He may be called a siddha, who has known from his inner experience that God exists. An analogy is given in the Vedanta to explain this. The master of the house is asleep in a dark room. Someone is groping in the darkness to find him. He touches the couch and says, No, it is not he. He touches the window and says no it is not he. He touches the door and he says no it is not he. This is known in the Vedanta as the process of neti neti. Not this, not this. At last his hand touches the master's body and he exclaims here he is. In other words he is now conscious of the existence of the master. So, uh, as we were mentioning, blessed are those who believe, who don't see. This is us, groping in the dark, feeling feeling in the psychological depths of our mind, seeking God. We say, no, this is not Him. We have that longing, that aspiration to know God. But he who seeks shall find. So if you continue in your path to persist and to practice, to experience God, it will happen. It's a law of nature. If you seek, you will find so it is a groping in the dark of our mind until finally through our discipline and meditation we experience god in Samadhi. so we are we are practicing neti neti not this not this
2: but do you believe that like in scripture in, in john that it's up to god to enable you
1: and the one and yes the one uh, there's a sufi saying by bayazid al-bistami he said uh, for 30 years i sought allah but in reality, it was Allah that was the seeker and I the sought. So the one who pushes us is our being to seek, Him. Because God is a treasure that wishes to be known, as it says in Al-Qur'an. And thus He made the universe and man so He could be known. He is a treasure that needs to be discovered in us. And the one who pushes us to work is Christ, Allah. Let's not I think, al
3: mentioned this word, disquietude.
1: Yes. And spiritual inquietudes is precisely Nettie. Nettie, We're looking in our mind. We want to know God, but we haven't experienced him yet. And so we seek, we seek. We feel that disturbance in our heart. uh, Spiritual inquietudes. You could say disquietude, too. And uh, inquietudes, it's mentioned in uh, Great Rebellion. There's a chapter on it specifically. It, mean, it doesn't mean disturbance, it means the heart is, or the soul is yearning. impassioned and yearning for God. Isn't
3: it like the gold, the fool the, the and the tarot, the gold gets pushing you?
1: Yes, yeah, so you could say that God is riding, trying to ride his donkey, which is us, our mind, and that he is trying to lead us in the direction he wants. But if we disobey, then we don't seek him. But if we yearn for him in the mystical path, we... Um, or seeking. In and and every experience, in meditation or out of the body, any type of phenomena we, we experience, said, yes, this is interesting, but I know it's not God. Until so finally arriving at uh, the experience, when we communicate face-to-face with Christ, with our innermost, and then we know. And that makes us a siddha. So before, when we enter the path, we are pravartaka. Those who are practicing for some time, who are performing nedi, nedi, are uh, sadakas, And then those who have experienced God are siddhi, but there is another stage beyond that. A, there is another type known as the siddha of the siddha, the supremely perfect. It is quite a different thing when one talks to the master inti- uh, intimately, when one knows God very intimately through love and devotion. A siddha has undoubtedly attained God, but the supremely perfect has known God very intimately. So it says in the Quran Allah is not estimated as he deserves to be estimated which the Sufis translate as he has not been known as he deserves to be known. So there are those who know God to a degree but then there are those who know God very intimately who have incarnated the Lord. That's very high and as as exemplified by the great masters of uh, mysticism. And so... uh, that is what we seek. First, to know God in meditation and out of the body and then to constantly develop that and cultivate that. Or as uh, some island viewer stated, quoting Blavatsky's uh, uh, Voice of the Silence, be humble in order to attain enlightenment and upon having attained enlightenment, be humbler still. doesn't mean that one has fully attained the enlightenment. It means in degrees. We're, it's always a cycle and fluctuation of experiences we have and don't have. It happens in... in uh, It's a type of gradual process. It can't be rushed. It happens like the unfolding of a rose. And when the rose exhumes its beauty, it's because the disciple has been cultivating that for many years. The way that we cultivate this mystical path is in the next graphic. So we're going to quote Thomas A. Kempis. Great monk, great mystic, who uh, actually was some Island Vior in a past incarnation, as he stated in uh, his books. So, when Sum Island Vior was incarnated at, uh, as this monk, he was really developing under the, the, the ray of monasticism, the spiritual influence of the Christian church. So, we have this image of Christ exalted mystically and teaching the multitudes. So, he taught, uh, I'm going to quote for you from his book, uh, The Imitation of Christ, which is a powerful work, especially for developing the heart, spiritual emotion, conscious devotion to God. It is very divine. So uh, this comes from four things which bring great peace. My child, this is Christ speaking to the Bodhisattva, I will teach you now the way of peace and true liberty. Seek, child, to do the will of others rather than your own. Always choose to have less rather than more. Look always for the last place and seek to be beneath all others. Always wish and pray that the will of God be fully carried out in you. Behold, such will enter into the realm of peace and rest. So our ego does not want to do any of that. When uh, we seek to do the will of others, rather than our own, the mind struggles, contradicts, argues, debates, justifies. If we remember these, these axi- or this axiom when we are in relation to, an, to another person, trying to resolve a conflict, then we will have peace. Instead of doing our will, we do the will of others, even if it hurts our pride. And this is really the meaning of uh, wearing our crown of thorns. Or the crown of thorns that the Master of our mental wore in His Passion. We, our desires, want to act out, and yet we restrain our mind. The mind suffers; it bleeds, it cries out, it wants consolation. But out of love and compassion, as exemplified by Jesus, we have to uh, bless those who curse us, who cause us pain, egotistically. We have peace when we cease to try to do our own will, but the will of others.
2: But to achieve that, isn't it of great importance to open your heart first? Because if you attack, if you try to go in that route immediately, isn't is it forcing against everything?
1: We have to begin where we're at, meaning never try to take on any type of difficulty that is beyond one's capacity. Instead, we have to learn how to be compassionate with the current circumstances we don't change it just grows it grows by performing it by renouncing our own our own will and doing what's good for others and that way our being may decide for us well now it's time for you to take the next step and to provide extra help extra difficulties well that
4: doesn't I feel like sometimes I get confused um, when people are being like verbally abusive or something but that makes
1: Right. It it isn't the opposite. So, mercy in the tree of life and compassion, or mercy and justice, chesed and geburah need to be balanced.
2: But what do you mean? Like, if someone's verbally abusive to you?
4: Yeah, like, I I was telling Paul, I've been at work, This someone keeps being verbally abusive to me, and I was confused about do you just say I'm
1: so sorry, like, whatever you want, or do you stand up for yourself? How do you know what to do? Real Christian compassion and mercy doesn't mean complacency with crime it means to 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 uh abuse Uh-oh. because uh, we need to learn to do the will of others but we also need to know limits if it's so, if our if being uh being complacent in a situation in which we need to act is going to harm ourselves but also to harm the other person mm-hmm. then it means that we need to do something
2: yeah because i always usually not you but I, i i try not to i i never try to return the abuse right i just try to understand them
1: and the way that we do the will of others is uh by working for their happiness now if they're abusive and they're creating problems in a workspace then we need to bring attention to authorities and other persons if if it's something serious and harmful now uh We always choose to have less rather than more, meaning less uh, material goods speaking, uh, less attachments to material goods. In our relation to uh, what we're discussing, always wish and pray that the will of God be fully carried out in you. That doesn't mean that we are like a doormat. It means that we take responsibility for the well-being of others. So, yes, in one sense, we need to do the will of others. Try to make them happy. But if that's not working, then, well, we need to be realistic. Not resentful, but to fulfill the will of God within us, which might mean to uh, confront the issue in the other person, but without hatred, without can anger.
2: Can it be also part of our karma?
1: That yes, we're but...
2: we to embrace sometimes...
1: Some, yeah, in many situations, it is recurrence. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we allow karma to swallow us alive. Okay. It means that we learn to negotiate it for the benefit of others and ourselves.
4: Well, when you say um, we must work to make others happy, doesn't that mean like more like
1: true happiness, not what they think will make them happy? Exactly. Like if someone's obsessed with money, giving them money yeah. isn't loving that. that exactly. Like Exactly. We want to do what's good for the being of that person.
4: Which might make them unhappy.
1: Which can make them very resentful and angry and derogatory. But you do it you, but you see that you see how Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is crucified. And he said that on the cross.
3: Well, oh, this, this presumes that they're they're receptive.
1: And even if they're not receptive, learn to give love regardless. Always seek to will do the will of God above all things. Seek to make others happy. Be satisfied with less rather than more. And always pray that uh, God's uh, will always be done within us. And that usually will mean contradicting other people. But we need to learn how to not act with anger or resentment. So the way that we do that is uh, cultivating our psychological sense of peace which is developed through devotion and mysticism. We have the image of the ascension of Christ on the right. And on the left, we have a quote I'm going to read for you from Thomas A. Kempis. It's a prayer he gave uh, in order to calm the mind, to develop devotion. Precisely relating to what we're discussing. Enlighten me, good Jesus, meaning enlighten me, my inner Christ, my intimate Christ, with the brightness of internal light. So what is that internal light? It is Direct cognizance through self observation on the defects we wish to work on. And take away all darkness from the habitation of my heart. Restrain my wandering thoughts and suppress the temptations which attack me so violently. Fight strongly for me, so that peace may come through your power and the fullness of your praise. Resound in the holy courts, so that peace may come through power and the fullness of your praise resound in the holy courts, which is a pure conscience. Command the winds and the tempests, say to the sea, be still, and to the north wind, do not blow, and there will be a great calm. So what is that sea and storm? The sea is our sexual passions. The waters of sexuality, which are disturbed by lust in the mind, fornication, desire. And the storm in the mind, the intellect, are all the churning of thoughts and desires which drive one, literally, when we're observing ourselves, seemingly to the point of desperation. Send forth your light, and your truth to shine on the earth, for I am as earth, empty and formless until you illumine me. This is a kabbalistic teaching. This is the very this is the meaning of the first uh, book of Genesis. The earth was formless and void, tohu Bohu in Hebrew. That earth is our psychology. That is. If we look inside, we see that we have a lot of darkness, chaos, anger, resentment that is churning constantly. And so in the book of Genesis, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, our innermost, floated above those waters. And it is through initiation that we calm the storm of the mind and that we calm the lake of our passions. Pour out your grace from above. Shower my heart with heavenly dew. So what is that heavenly dew, that those waters? It's sexual. And uh, dew is, is a result of rain from a previous night or morning, which has an alchemical teaching. We find alchemical teaching even in nature. When there's heat in the soil, the water evaporates and rises upward. Likewise, through sexual magic, when men and women are united, sexually speaking, they develop heat, which raises this, the waters of sexuality into steam energy that rises up the spinal column this is symbolized in alchemy as the athenor which is boiling certain substances to purify the mind to transform the lead of, the, of our passions into uh, the gold of the spirit so when those when the water evaporates into the sky it forms it creates uh, lightning storms which water the heart so the dew is precisely the, the pure energies of our Christic energy of Christ of the semen which are residing in the heart that have been transmuted. So through alchemy we raise the water into steam which forms a storm we could say in our mind and the lightning of Christ emerges, is born in us. And so the dew is precisely like the flower of the heart is the, the pure seminal essence of our transmutations which creates calm and peace. But it seems like when we begin transmutation, things are chaotic. We see a lot of evilness in our mind that is, seems unstoppable and uncontrollable. This is what it means that we have a storm in our mind. We start transmuting, and suddenly we, we realize we're in a we're in a hailstorm. We're in a chaos.
2: So in other words, it's not like you're possessed. You're just going through that
1: storm. You're just bracing the storm, and you're seeing the mind for what it is. And so what happens is, after the storm, the dew resides in the, the heart, and there's peace. So the thing is to persist in transmutation and not to be discouraged if the mind is crazy and chaotic and disturbing. But it'll pass. The more we transmute and let the light of God illumine us through transmutation and alchemy or pranayama and mantra and by meditating, then the storm calms by the grace of Christ. Open the springs of devotion to water the earth that I may produce the best of good fruits. So again, the springs of devotion to the Divine Mother is sex. The fountain of life, in which, if we never waste it, it will be regenerative in nature. And we will never thirst again.
2: Before, I'm sorry, but is there... I know you're not supposed to think of time. What is the time? Is there such a thing as a time difference of going through that storm?
1: It's a process. Time is, we could say, illusory. But we also stay practically that It's a process. We say sometimes it takes years to develop real discipline. But that discipline starts every day in this moment. So we don't need to think that, well, with time we're going to change. It means we have to work now. But we have to also be practical and understand that it's a process. Nature does not take leaps. The rose grows gradually from the compost heap of our sins and to rise up into something pure. So these good fruits that are watered through devotion are precisely the virtues of the soul. So a flower, the, we say the sexual organs of a plant is the fruit. That's the consummation of its regenerative and, uh, and uh, alchemical process in its growth. So water open the springs of devotion through transmutation to water the earth, our physical body, that it can be regenerated and that the virtues of the soul may flourish as good fruits. Lift up my heart pressed down by the weight of sins and direct all my desires to heavenly things that having tasted the sweetness of supernal happiness I may find no pleasure in thinking earthly things. Snatch me up and deliver me from all the passing comfort of creatures for no created thing can fully quiet and satisfy my desires or my longing to know God. He says, Join me to yourself in an inseparable bond of love. Because you alone can satisfy him who loves you. And without you, all things are worthless. So what is that ultimate devotion for God? It's when a man and, and woman are united sexually. That is where the couple can show genuine love to God by not fornicating, by not reaching the orgasm, by not being, behaving in sex as a beast. Because as Rumi taught us, the Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, great Sufi master, that... Uh, that uh, those who, uh, the way that God will be with us, the way that we have sex is the way that God will be with us. If we have sex like animals, God will be be with us as the avenger, as justice, to punish us for our crimes, for indulging in negative behaviors and causing harm to others. But if we are in sex as a pure being, trying to develop chastity and sexual moral purity, God will be with us as mercy. So we have the two pillars of the tree of life, mercy and justice. If we want to follow God, we go to the right in sexuality, meaning we go towards the right pillar, trying to follow transmutation. The left pillar represents, can represent the energies going down because if we behave as animals in sex, then those energies go down to clip off to hell. And that is how God will be with us. If that is how we have sex. So Rumi is affirming what Thomas A. Kempis, or some island viewer, taught. Now the way that we uh, help to curtail the negative uh, aspects of our mind, or of our psychology, we have to learn how to pray for others and learn, and learn forgiveness, to not take accounts towards other people. To not justify our behavior but to really become selfless. So it begins, mysticism really begins with transmutation. Developing the, the heart. And uh, we cultivate this compassion for others with our transmutatory work by developing compassion for others. Or We say bodhicitta which is in Sanskrit knowledge of the empty nature of all phenomena. How things are impermanent. And also compassion and love for others. So we have in this image Thomas A. Kempis. And we included his famous prayer. Excuse me. From uh, his teaching. You see that he has a skull at his knees. Meaning all the garbage of the intellect is dead. It is in the grave. And he is, you notice in this image he's praying up. The heavens almost up towards his own uh, middle brow, which is where we have the Adam of the Father, the spiritual uh, atomic intelligence, Adam Anu. And so it is through death of our own desires that we really develop true love for humanity and we cease to be interested in our own welfare alone. So mysticism is founded on this. The way that we develop ourselves is by helping others, by learning to work for the benefit of all beings, we in turn benefit ourselves. This is a reciprocal law of nature. But the problem is, as soon as we want to do something that is selfless, the mind reacts, fights. What will help calm that storm is developing that willpower. So as Francis of Assisi taught us, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I not be so much, seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.
3: Well, Well, part of this is, is, is concentrating to observe you the defects of this mystical path. And part of it is that. Yes. Finding those defects, which is a full-time
1: job. Yes. For the one who, uh, whom God loves, whom Allah loves, as said in the Sufi scriptures, there is no rest. For the one who fears God, there is no rest. So it is a constant battle. Always, this moment, never losing one's guard. And the way that we can help uh, understand our own defect is by studying these teachings. The prayers of the great prophets and saints. Because they teach us how anecdotes and axioms that help us reflect on our selfish nature so that we can transform it into a selfless nature. egoless. Now, okay. Now, what's uh, necessary is to, in order to develop mysticism, we need to develop the Gnostic path within, which as we mentioned is precisely work with sexual energy. But there's much more involved to it, which we're going to elaborate. In this image, we have the resurrected Jesus before Mary Magdalene. And the Gnostic path precisely works with the sexual brain. The sexual center. Uh, I'm going to read for you this quote from Salmael and Vior, who explains the meaning of the archetype or symbol of Mary Magdalene. This is from the Pisces Sophia unveiled. And Jesus, the compassionate, answered and said unto Mary Magdalene, Mary, thou blessed one, whom I will perfect in all mysteries of those of the height, discourse and openness thou whose heart is raised to the kingdom of heaven more than all thy brethren. So, uh, Mary Magdalene is the repented sinner, Kundri, Gundugia, the indispensable woman for the great work. In Wagner's drama, Parsifal totally transforms the tempter Kundri after she submits to him. A man needs a Mary Magdalene in order to work in the ninth sphere, yesod, and in order to obtain the resurrection, meaning complete death of ego, and to be fully united in Bina, the Holy Spirit. What is magnificent is to be saved, and to save Kundri, Magdalene. Tempter Gundrigia, Magdalene, Kundri. You will be perfected in all mysteries of those of the height more than all thy brethren. For, as it states later in this text, in the Cathedral of the Soul, there is more happiness for one who repent for one repented sinner, than for a thousand righteous ones who do not need repentance. So Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, as the story goes. So what does Magdalene represent? The word "mag" in Indo-European language means priest, magician, mage. a mage. So a priest, a real magician, is one who works in alchemy, who is transforming the prostitute of the body into something holy. So as we discussed about the the Sabbath, Bet is the house of the body. The fire of Christ is Shin. Together you spell Shabbat. To keep the Sabbath holy is to make one's body holy. Meaning we don't orgasm. We don't waste our forces. And we purify this body that we have. Mary Magdalene also represents the soul. Because all of us are prostitutes deep down in our psyche and that we have all sinned against the Holy Ghost. The white swan mentioned in Parsifal Parsifal by Wagner that was wounded to death by an arrow. Now, um, the way that uh, we practice alchemy determines purity. And uh, from the great sinners, the ones of great repentance are born there's more joy for a, a great demon to repent than there's one who's never committed so much evil. It doesn't justify their action, but it, just, it shows the mercy of God. That if we repent, if we as uh, psychologically speaking, as prostitutes, as Mary Magdalene's, we repent, we will be more exalted in heaven than all the angels who have never been to such depths as we have. Yes. So all of us have committed sins against the Holy Ghost, have committed fornication. And so as some island viewer states, Mary Magdalene gleams and will gleam terribly divine. So the way that we gleam is to work as a mag, magician, a mage, a priest with our, sec- with our partner. That's ultimately how we will be redeemed.
2: I've run into individuals who are extremely strong in their faith, you know, and most of them are Christian, and some believe, and and there's no reason for me to doubt them, they have abilities of healing their own children, because there's no doubt their faith is extremely strong, but they don't, they don't know, and they don't, you know, what I truly believe is, is the perfect matrimony, how is it possible for them to achieve some, some of these things?
1: Grace of God mercy and also karma so the in certain temples uh it's well documented that uh the devotion of the congregation has been able to produce uh supernatural phenomena Mm -hmm. like statues moving gaining life bleeding sculptures things of that nature they don't necessarily know this science but they have a love of god which is sincere but their love would be even more powerful. So
2: if they're so close to God, why isn't something directing? Even if I were to go out, which I don't, because I could see it would create a ter- it would create turmoil in the relationship. Why can't they just believe it? Because I did it to one individual, and I was, I was everything out of my mouth was blasphemy.
1: So, so uh, the thing is, they are at a certain level at a certain uh, understanding. And some of them we were taught that we need to learn how to respect the, the will of others. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we have to, in your case, you'd have to learn to do the will of the other person, meaning to not challenge their faith. Yes. And that's really the most respectful thing to their God because they're at a certain level, a certain understanding, but not as high as you are because you've been giving a deeper teaching. So the thing is, uh, you cannot, as a, in Buddhism, say it's uh one should not give the greater dharma to one of lesser dharma, because, there, uh, as we're going to explain, there, uh, if you try to put new wine in old wine skins, the, the skin will break, as, which is we're going to elaborate upon. So in this image, we have uh, Christ amongst publicans and sinners, which constitutes the Gnostic path, in which uh, he elaborates a very profound teaching about the righteous and the sinners. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So to have mercy, not sacrifice, meaning we don't sacrifice our neighbor by criticizing them, by criticizing their beliefs. And that's very challenging, especially when we want to share this type of knowledge with them. We want to help them. But to them, it's criticism. And they, we have to learn to respect the level of being of that person. So Jesus says, I, I want mercy, not sacrifice. And like Nietzsche said, uh, Many, many Christians don't know how to love their God except by sacrificing man, by crucifying man. And that's what we all do on a, on a daily basis. With anger, we crucify. And so we need to learn mercy, to respect the will of being of the other person. And to, uh, to know that if they want to enter this path, they have to recognize that they, how they really are sinners. Because many of them think they're very righteous. They, they're holy. Oh, I believe in Jesus and this is my path really what they think is that they're righteous even if they say that they're sinners. To really know that one is a sinner is to have comprehension of one's defects.
2: That's why it's so um, confusing because they truly believe through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that they're righteous immediately and they will forever be righteous because that's the reason why uh, God gave up his only son.
1: And they read things literally. They don't understand that Christ is an energy that needs to be incarnated within the soul.
2: so actually um...
1: Which is why James in the, in the in scriptures said, faith without works is dead. So if they don't work in meditation, they don't have anything. So we have to learn to respect their level of being.
3: Well, you can because they can get very recalcitrant. Believe me. And, uh, you know, when they get that in their brain, you
1: better get back off. And, uh, and sometimes that's not the only thing we can do. There came to him the disciples of John saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? So this is relating to how many people who follow the literal tradition of Judaism or any faith criticize the initiates, criticize those who are trying to walk the path of initiation. And so, uh, and Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So the the disciples of uh the exoteric traditions confront us and say, well, why don't you fast physically? But Jesus says, well, fast, that, doesn't, that isn't the meaning of fasting. He talked to them on an internal level. It means that when God is with us at some points, and then retracts, and then we, one fasts in one's soul. So many uh, people confront, can confront us saying, why don't you do as we do, follow our tradition, our path. And, Jesus, and then Jesus spoke to them as well It's a psychological work. It isn't about external things. Just raising one's hand and saying, I believe in Jesus. It isn't about that. That isn't real mysticism. Because faith without works is dead. And in relation to people being able to receive this type of teaching, we have this quote. One of my favorites by the Master Alberto. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. So, the wine of gnosis, the wine of trans- tra- alchemy, the wine of transmutation, this, this science and teaching. You cannot put this wine into a mind that is really degenerated and is attached to its own beliefs. People who say, no, my... I, I, I want your wine but let me pour it in my, my preconceptions my, my filthy bag of theories this wine bag which is old and rotten and so you pour the wine in and then the bottle breaks and then having arguments and conflicts with people because the wine is not appropriate for them we want to give them new wine then they have to have a new wineskin meaning they have to have an entirely new type of mentality you can't put this type of teaching into someone who is antithetical to it. So you can't also put an old piece of cloth on a new garment. You're going to ruin both. So in order for people to accept and follow this teaching, they need to learn to be receptive. Meaning like in Sankapa's teaching of, in Buddhism, in Islam Ram Chemno, the bowl has to face upward. If it's facing down, you can't, you can't give anything.
2: and you just don't ever uh, speak to your Divine Mother, what are the consequences?
1: Well, one thing is, who do we mean by Jesus Christ?
2: Christ, the love, you know, God.
1: And uh, when we pray to our inner Christ, we pray to our being, we can pray to our Divine Mother too. Because with within Christ is the Divine Mother. Within the Divine Mother is Christ. Okay. So Christ. So these are aspects of our inner divinity which become integrated through this work that we're doing. And so uh, we need to. We can pray to all, or, or one and the other. But follow your heart in terms of who you must. Part, what part of your being you wish to address? Because a child doesn't need a formula to speak to God. Now, in relation to this path of the wine drinkers, the Gnostic path, this wine of alchemy. We have the teachings of Jesus at the wedding of Canaan. People think literally. This is a story about how Jesus transform physical water into physical wine to get people drunk. We have to understand that this is at a wedding. Man and woman together can, produce, can transform the water of sex into the wine of God, into the spiritual intoxication that the Sufis speak so abundantly about. And we're going to explain this uh, part of the Gospel. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus, meaning Miriam in Hebrew, which means to raise, the kundalini that rises, the serpent of fire that rises up the spinal column, the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So this is a Kabbalistic t- teaching in its depth. So they're at a marriage with many people who are fornicators. And clairvoyantly they see, well, Mother Mary, the Mary, Miriam, the Divine Mother, says, this person does not have wine, meaning they don't have the serpents raised, a fire. And then Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Meaning he cannot incarnate within the soul until that wine is elevated until the serpents of fire are developed in a marriage. His mother, Miriam, saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. So the number six in Kabbalistic numerology relates to the sixth sephirah. And stone represents Yesod. Yes, so Tiferet is the heart and the stone is precisely Yesod, the sexual power. So Tiferet or, the bodhisattva, or the, the bodhisattva, we could say Jesus, it has to transform that water into light, into wine with, through Tiferet and through Yesod, through sex. So Christ is working from above, the Trinity, the tree of life, through the heart and then commanding sex because the fires of sexuality are dominated by the fires of the heart. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the waterpots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. So, uh, what does it mean to keep the wine until later? It means that uh, that development only comes but through work. The best wine is saved for last. We have to progressively earn that right to raise the fire by developing the heart and working with the yesod. So, this is the beginning of miracles that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, manifesting his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the Gnostic path as the path of transmutation also relates to the teachings of sacrifice for humanity. So we have in this image the fishermen following after Jesus where uh, Jesus eventually said, Be thou fishers of men. So this refers to how as the disciples of this teaching we seek to help others learn this science. Now, not all of us necessarily may become an instructor or may want to or have that disposition, but many of the great masters who followed the Gnostic path performed this sacrifice. They became missionaries or teachers, instructors, and so they learned to fish for human human beings, fish for students in the sea of life, in order to provide them this, this teaching. Scripturally, it states in uh, Mark chapter one, verses sixteen to twenty-two. Now, as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, "Come after me, and I will make you make you become, to become fishers of men." And straightway they forsook their nets, and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. So, what are these nets that people throw out into the world? The theories and doctrines that they have about religion to try to capture people and pull them into their congregation. Well, we are the chosen ones, the saved ones. Follow us and you're, and you're all set. So Christ is actually against all those terrestrial doctrines which are really ignorant of the esoteric heart of religion. And straightway he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Or as Jesus taught, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me, who does not follow after me. It doesn't mean that we dis- disregard our parents or family. It means that we take priority in terms of who, who do we love first? Christ. And that we do what is necessary to incarnate Christ. And then we can love family and neighbor. First, love thy God above all things, and thy neighbor as thyself. The problem is people, in their traditions and religions, they want to love, uh, they say they love God and then their brothers next, but really they love themselves. They love their beliefs. And they went into Capernaum and straightway into the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Meaning, teaching the doctrine of Christ, he hum- humbly provided a higher teaching in which people were shocked. When they hear this type of science, they get shocked, even angry, because it contradicts everything they believe.
3: That's why the Pharisees, one of the reasons the Pharisees were down
1: on them. Exactly. And so the Pharisees also are in our mind, our egos that don't like this teaching, that fight against the fight against the work of Christ in our interior, our desires. To elaborate on this teaching of the fishermen, I'd like to quote to you uh, an excerpt from Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, where it seems that he might be, he, he plays a bit on this teaching of fishers of men, but it's very insightful in terms of understanding what Jesus taught. So, have in this image, uh, the mountains upon which Nietzsche composed his book. So he says, Why sacrifice? I squander what is given to me. I, a squanderer with a thousand hands, how could I call that sacrificing, meaning giving knowledge to others? So we talk about sacrifice for humanity, which Nietzsche was familiar with. And he doesn't call it, the fact that he's teaching, he was teaching his disciples, he says, well, I don't call this sacrifice that I'm giving so much. And he says, like a squanderer I am with a thousand hands, meaning I give what I receive internally in the internal worlds, and I give to my disciples, is what Nietzsche is saying. So to have a thousand hands is the symbol of Avalokiteshvara, the Cosmic Christ in Buddhism has literally a thousand arms. And when I desired honey, I merely desired bait and sweet mucus and mucilage, which even growling bears and queer, sullen, evil birds put out their tongues, the best bait needed by hunters and fishermen. So what is a honey a symbol of? A symbol of alchemy? Because the pollen of the flower is transformed, transmuted into the sweetness of the soul. So the bee, we know, it's interesting, we know that the bee is a devolving creature, degenerated. And Samuel Enver explains the history of the the kingdom of the bees and the ants. But the bees, the fact that it's a degenerated creature able to create something so beautiful, like as honey, attests to the grace and virtue of this path that as evil as we are, we can change. We can produce honey. And every day our body produces honey the semen that when we transmute it, is the wine of the alchemists
2: Because the bees fell
1: the, the, Yeah, we say that the, the, race, the race of hu- humanity That devolved into bees they, uh, they fornicated And they produce a very degenerated society But well, that's another topic But uh, the fact that this honey is mucus and mucilage That even queers evil birds of omen and growling bears Growling bears are angry people People who get angry that you contradict them. But when they see how sweet the honey is, they can't resist. Mm -hmm. Their soul can't resist. So their ego is fighting against you. Well, this is how the way it is. And people get mad at you for trying to teach them this. And also evil, queer, sullen, evil birds, meaning black magicians, even they can change. Give them honey. This is the real path. And then if they renounce their old ways, then even they will pull out their tongues. Give me more. For if the world is like a dark jungle... And as a garden of delight for all the wild hunters. It strikes me even more, and so I prefer to think of it as an abysmal rich sea. A sea full of colorful fish and crabs, which even gods might covet. For, that, for their sakes they would wish to become fishermen and net throwers and net throwers. So rich is the world in queer things, great and small. Especially the human world, the human sea. That is where I now cast my golden fishing rod and say, open up, you human abyss. So what, what is it, the crabs, that gods might covet? The gods, like we said, there is more joy for a sinner who repents than a thousand righteous ones who have no repentance, need for repentance. So there's levels of realization involved. And so uh, the gods covet those who are, they feel love for those who are really ascending higher than them as a result of their work. And so the sea of life is the abysmal sea, the abyss, in which the Gnostic seeks to catch fish. Open up and cast up to me your fish and glittering crabs. With my best bait I shall today bait the queerest human fish. So in these studies we made all sorts of people. We're um, unique in these uh, studies. My happiness itself I cast out far and wide, between sunrise, noon, and sunset. To see if any human fish might not learn to wiggle and wriggle from my happiness until, biting at my sharp hidden hooks, they might come up to my height. The most colorful, abysmal groundlings to the most sarcastic of all who fish for men. For that is what I am through and through. Reeling, reeling in, raising up, raising, a raiser, cultivator, a disciplinarian. Who once counseled himself, not for nothing, Become who you are. So what is that in Hebrew? Eheyeh asher, He is the one who becomes. So become who you are, meaning your inner Kater, who is inside you. Thus men may now come up to me, for I am still waiting for the sign that the time has come from my descent, from Tifereth down. I still do not myself go under as I must do under the eyes of men. That is why I wait here, cunning and mocking on high mountains, neither impatient nor patient, rather as one who has forgotten patience too, because his passion is over. This refers to teachers. I mean, you teach for a long time, then uh, one learns to be patient and not to be impatient about students coming, to be able to help them. But we fish, we wait for for the souls to bite, and then they taste the honey and say, I want more. So you raise them up through discipline, through practice, so that they can attain, become who they are, become who you are. You're in a And verily, my eternal destiny does not hurry and press me, and it leaves me time for jests and sarcasm, and joking around and laughing, having a good sense of humor, so that I could climb this high mountain today to catch fish. Has a man ever caught fish on high mountains? And even though what I want and do up here be folly, to people who don't know anything about esotericism. It is still better than if I became solemn down there from waiting and green and yellow, a swaggering wrath snorter from waiting, a holy howling storm out of the mountains, an impatient one who shouts down into the valleys, Listen, or I shall whip you with the scourge of God. Precisely all the, pe- the fanatics we're talking about. So to fish for uh, disciples on the mountain, that's what the initiates do teaching and teaching and elevating their level of being and seeking for others to rise up to their own intimate heights, their own kater, to become who you are. We're going to speak about the path of yoga next. So we have in this image uh, Shiva meditating and a quote from Samael and Vior from the Revolution of Beelzebub where he explains how yoga is completely synthesized within Gnostic doctrine. All of the seven schools of yoga are within Gnosis, yet they are in a synthesized and absolutely practical way. There is tantric hatha yoga in the practices of the maithuna, sexual magic. There is practical raja yoga in the work with the chakras. There is jnana yoga in our practices and mental disciplines, which we have cultivated in secrecy for millions of years. We have bhakti yoga in our prayers and rituals. We have laya yoga in our meditation and respiratory exercises. Samadhi exists in our practices with the maithuna and during our deepest meditations. We live the path of karma yoga in our upright actions, in our upright thoughts, in our upright feelings, etc. So notice how this quote synthesizes everything we discussed about the three brains. Upright thought, feeling, and action. How uh, prayer is bhakti yoga, the path of the mystic. Sexual magic is the path of the Gnostic. So all of this is integral. And yoga is essential to the Gnostic path, just as mysticism is to the other three, the other two. So we had it before in the image of the uh, Master Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. That devil is our mind, our own animal ego, who is constantly trying to lure our attention down to clip off, to material things. So In the Gospels, he says, "Give me uh, bow to me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world." And we have here a quote from uh, John Milton's *Paradise Regained*, which uh, John Milton, for your information, is a great master. Composed *The Paradise Lost*, *Samson Agonistes*, and other uh, classical works of English literature. Did he die young? He 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 was he was no he was he was older. He was around sixty-four, I think, when he died. But uh, he was blind. He went blind. Terrible karma he had to pay. He suffered a lot for it. But his poetry, he dictated while he was blind. His great masterpieces near the end of his life in which we are fortunate to have this literature. So in this image, we have uh, Christ confronted by the devil and how Christ always points upward, like the pentagram always facing up towards heaven. And... uh, this is uh, The quote I'm going to read for you is when Satan is tempting him with all the kingdoms of the world and how he will give him power in Malkuth and hell if he follows him. But this is what Jesus says through John Milton. Extol not riches then the toil of fools, the wise man's cumberance if not snare, more apt to slacken virtue and abate her edge than prompt her to do aught may merit praise. What if with aversion, aversion I reject riches and realms, yet not for that a crown golden in show is but a wreath of thorns, brings dangers, troubles, cares, and sleepless nights to him that wears the real di- regal diadem when on his shoulders each man's burden lies? For herein stands the office of a king, his honor, virtue, merit, and chief praise, that for the public all this weight he bears, yet he who reigns within himself And rules passions, desires, and fears. Is more king. Which every wise and virtuous man attains. And who attains not. Ill aspires to rule cities of men or headstrong multitudes. Subject himself to anarchy within. Or lawless passions in which he serves. But to guide nations in the way of truth. By saving doctrine. And from error lead to no and knowing worship God aright, meaning to really teach them this science that we're practicing so that they can know God, not to rule physical kingdoms, is yet more kingly. This attracts the soul, like the honey, the mucilage, that Nietzsche mentions. Governs the inner man, the nobler part, that other or the body only reigns, and oft by force, which to a generous mind so reigning can be no sincere delight. And that might be easier for me because I studied a lot of English. But if, you, if I suggest study Milton. He's a great master. His literature is profound. He gives a very divine teaching. In this image, this graphic, we have Jesus meditating, following the path of yoga, with the symbol of Aum above his head which is the mantra of uh, Chesed, the Eternal. So yoga really is constituted, or jnana yoga we're going to explain in terms of meditation, is practiced in this way. This quote comes from Igneous Rose by Samael and Vior. Excuse me. Oriental wisdom practices meditation in the following order. Asana, posture of the body. Two, Pratyahara, thinking in nothing. Three, dharana, concentration on only one thing. Four, dhyana, profound meditation. Five, samadhi, ecstasy. It is necessary to place the body in the most comfortable position, asana. So with yoga, we don't need to perform the full lotus or half lotus. If that's discomforting for our body. We can sit like Maitreya in Buddhism, who is the only Buddha figure in the Mahayana Buddhism that sits in a chair, Western style, whatever posture is comfortable for us yeah. to practice.
3: Just, just what you're saying now regarding and as you were he said he, he, he described all these different poses. He said those are good for people for the most part in the Eastern areas. You know, right. But he said the, the, the position that's most comfortable
1: for you. Right. Because many people try meditating for years, and they just spend 20 years trying to. Learn to sit with their body. They don't get anywhere with their mind. It's it's terrible.
3: Waste of time.
1: That's a long time. And uh, yes. Same with like um with sexual
4: magic. Do, this, do you know how there's like all these different positions given? Like is it the same kind of
1: thing? Just whatever is most comfortable for that couple. Yes. So uh, there's the teachings of uh there's the teachings of the Kama Kama Sutra, Kama Sutra which has a lot of degeneration in it, but there's postures that are beneficial. Um, it's I, it's a really a mixed book, I would say.
4: Yeah, well, especially now, like, if you try to find that book now, it's, like,
1: pornography. They add a lot of things. Yeah. But uh, there's certain postures that were unadulterated, but I wouldn't, rec- I wouldn't necessarily recommend that text. But uh, there's certain postures that Selma island Vera mentions in Mystery of the Golden Blossom, which uh, are beneficial for different body types.
3: Facilitates the energy.
1: Yes. It also helps, maintains one's strength and connection and prolong the... Yes, this text.
2: Because I always heard you say how it benefits sitting upright because the spine is sitting upright. But my most comfortable position is laying in bed.
1: Yes. So So long as you can practice in the beginning not necessarily falling asleep. So, I mean, I love lying meditating on my back when I have a lot of energy. But if I'm too tired, I know I'm going to knock out. Oh. So I immediately I sit, I sit down in a chair. to. A so it's easier. So, See,
2: but here's the thing. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm failing. Because there are some times, yeah, I'm, I'm not. And it's evident that I'm falling asleep.
1: So the solution is work with japa, mantra recitation, or pranayama. Something to give you energy. Mm-hmm. You can do runes before you sit to practice so that you have more willpower to sit and not let your body dominate you.
3: cycle, but it's slow, but it's also deep. It's right. deep, and when it comes up, and then it's concentrating on your heart, you know, there's different ways of doing this. You know, you may, you may say deep to yourself, deeply, gently, heart, heart, Just, it, it helps me a lot. Totally relaxed, you're, you're aware, but you're very relaxed, and you
1: don't go to sleep. So when you're praying, that is to work with the springs of devotion that Tempest mentioned. So that, uh, it, so that the storm in the mind, and the turbulence of the waters are Say or or calm. So asana in the beginning is we need to physically relax. Any posture physically that's conducive for us to maintain our attention, but to be completely relaxed. So uh again different postures for different people.
3: Yeah, can I just add that you mentioned this too and I didn't see the literature, a candle helps the element of fire? Yes. Also like a diffuser. Uh say you have frankincense in the, yes. water, the ionized water. There's something and frankincense specifically from what I really elevate you, really get you in a very meditative calm, calm the right.
1: No, not drinking. It, oh. comes, it comes as a it, it, it Diffuser. So uh, the, the, if if you feel uh, if you, you if you don't like burning burning in your home, diffusers are excellent. So that can help you relax. You I mean I use a diffuser too. I have a I like to use Pine or a, a company called Young Living. <clears throat> they uh, I have one called Thieves. Which, if you don't necessarily want to burn in your home, you can light. You can use uh, essential oils to clean the atmosphere well, through a diffuser.
3: On the incense, yeah, I did get it, but the company, uh, you know, to burn frankincense granules, by the granules, the company that in the past I used, it was slow burning and it was clean. Now, some of these wafers that are coming are very fast burning and they're stronger. So that's why I went to the diffuser. Uh, it's the same company. But the, whatever they're using, the charcoal—it right. just burns fast and it's strong. And it's
1: just you want to find one that will burn long and uh, gradually burn. So exactly. uh, you got to sometimes you got to do some shopping. So all that will help to calm the body. That's preliminary. Pratyahara is to not think about anything. Right. That's really that for, for most people. It's just finding a posture that's comfortable. But that's not even the beginning, really. The the beginning of really entering the concentration is to don't think. Try not to think. That's the, the challenge. Don't let the intellect try to deliberate and, and speculate and think about other things. In order to achieve concentration, which is to, think on, is to concentrate on only one thing, it doesn't mean that we have, a, have to have a mind in the beginning that's completely silent. There are degrees, like uh, clarity in a storm in which the clouds part for a moment and you can see the sun. It's an allegory for meditative states. Sometimes the storm is going on. You can see the storm, but the clouds open for a little bit and you have a sense of peace and, and a type of non-thought, the serenity of no thought that Samael Viewer mentions.
3: Well, just let me add to that what you just said right now. Silencing, when you feel calm here, silence, I find that silences the mind, at least for me. As long as you feel, it's a lightness of heart, not that right. heavy. concentrating. you don't be still, none of that. It's a certain lightness in conjunction with the breath. Slowly, when you get that conjoint, when you synthesize that, it seems to release
1: that kind of, it silences the mind. Right. And so, and then, uh, and then, once we silence our mind, we need to concentrate on one thing, focus on an object of meditation. Whether it be a line from scripture, a book, a teaching we received, an experience we had, an image. Many things we can focus on. Or, uh, as we're going to explain while we're giving classes uh, and uh, our new place. It's going to... We're going to talk about retrospective meditation.
2: Where's the new place?
1: It's going to be at home. Uh, about 15 minutes from
4: here. Mm-hmm. Like, um, do you know... Rich?
2: Richard Del Moro? Is that that
4: is? It's like Red,
2: Peterson and Clark, like Clark? right there. You know oh, that? really? No, yeah.
1: Definitely. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about retrospective meditation. To, to meditate on our day, to focus on the egos we wish to comprehend and to annihilate. So we're going to practice that diligently when we meet. So to focus on one, there's many things we can concentrate on in our practice. Dhyana is meditation when we actually reflect on the content of the object of, of concentration we wish to understand. Meditation is when we receive new information, new insight. Samadhi is when we are fully conscious and we unite with God. Samadhi is also comprehension. It's a spark of understanding, like a lightning bolt. That suddenly in meditation we see, we understand something in a way we never understood before. And the mind just is shocked, silent. It's a spark. And, um, and then afterward usually what happens is the thunderclouds come and say, no, I don't understand what happened. No, no, that was just your mind, that was just your ego. But you knew you experienced something objective. So that's samadhi, a minor degree. So there's many levels. As, as many and variant as the dimensions of the tree of life of the Kabbalah.
2: So that's in the physical and that's also in the spiritual realms?
1: Yes. Okay. Samadhi can happen any moment if we're really diligent in paying attention. For as Al-Junaid uh, said in uh, Sufi doctrine, um, all of duty, he who does not establish all of duty in vigilance and relationship to his connection with God shall not attain to unveiling and witnessing. So to establish all of duty is to meditate, to re- respect and venerate the, tr- the tradition in which we're practicing so that we can um, cultivate the exercises that we wish to work with. And then to establish vigilance in our relationship to us and our being. Then we uh, can attain unveiling where the mind, the illusions of the mind are torn and we witness God.
2: So to get that lightning, of that, that sharp uh, shock that you're talking about, it's through meditation.
1: Yes. Okay. That's, how we, that's how we develop that.
2: Because that's the only way I can leave my body. I have to have that light.
1: You've got to relax. Yeah. Relax and develop comprehension of the body and your mental states. The mental states yeah, are more important. During the day too, shock, yes. Like just, when you're walking down the street and, yeah. you th- and maybe you're daydreaming and suddenly... I mean, I've had this instant where I, sometimes I'm, my mind's, I'm paying attention but my mind is wandering and I'm losing my focus. And suddenly I get a shock, like, wake up from my being. And just out of nowhere. I'm just doing something completely trivial. And then getting shocked. And it reminds me of a saying by Mansur Al-Halaj. He's a Muslim Christ. He said, um, when God loves his, his disciple, he will use even his stray thoughts to bring him back to attention. So he will address your thoughts, like, you were just thinking about this and forgetting me. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I disobeyed. And then keep, keep working. So, in the daytime, that's, that's a type of samadhi, like a, a, a comprehension which is very alarming and provides awareness. It's a clear perception. So, it is necessary to place the body in the most comfortable position, asana. It is indispensable to blank the mind before concentrating, pratyahara. It is urgent to know how to fix the mind on only one object, dharana. Then we profoundly reflect on the content of the object itself, dhyana. Thus, through this way, we reach ecstasy, samadhi. All of these esoteric disciplines of the mind must saturate our daily life. So like I mentioned to you, you can be walking down the street. Your meditation should be when you're walking down the street. Everywhere we go, we need to be meditating, remembering God, so that insight comes spontaneously.
3: What are those steps again,
1: you say, relax, silence the mind? Yes, asana is posture. Okay. Pratyahara is no thought. Dharana is concentration on one thing. Dhyana is meditation, when we reflect on the object of our concentration. Samadhi is ecstasy, comprehension. So to conclude, there's a, the end of the quote from the book I mentioned at the beginning, from Igne, uh, the book Igneous Rose. explains how the three paths, the mystic, the, the yogi, and the gnostic, helped to develop our own spiritual idiosyncrasy, known as the seven uh, cosmic rays. So this is what Samael and Vera mentioned in the beginning, which I'm going to reiterate. The seven rays of cosmic evolution are synthesized in these three ways, the mystical, the gnostic, and the yogic paths, that the Nazarene showed. So there are seven mighty rays. I'm, now I'm stepping aside from ways and talking about the rays. In this image we have... Uh, the Lamb with Seven Horns and Seven Eyes, mentioned in the book of Revelation, which symbolizes the energy of Christ that manifests in seven primary fashions, seven primary ways. Every time a new God emerges from the absolute, a new spirit unfolding down the tree of life, that monad, or spirit, that being, uh, expresses or enters into one of seven rays. These are influences or idiosyncrasies in God, in Christ. So there's seven. Just as we know that there are seven main planets in alchemy, seven v- primary virtues, seven vices, which relate to the, this, uh, these uh, influences. So we have... Uh, i got to make it bigger. I have a quote from some island Vior. He explains in his book, The Seven Words... Each master belongs to a certain ray, for there are seven rays of cosmic evolution. And I'm going to quote for you also the the archangels that govern those rays. So each of us, our being, belongs to one of the seven rays I'm going to mention. The lunar ray, Gabriel, or Gabriel. The Mercurian ray, Raphael. The Venusian ray, Uriel. The solar ray, Mikael. The Martian ray, Samael. The Jupiterian ray, Zachariel and the Saturnian ray, or we feel. So the lunar ray, now uh, I reiterate these, uh, these rays refer to qualities in our inner God that are unique to that ray and unique to us. And so there's certain uh, predispositions and qualities that associate with these different, these different rays, which we develop in ourselves by working with the three ways, the mystic, the gnostic, and the yogi. So as Samuel mentions, our own ray or spiritual influence is developed particular to us by how we practice mysticism, transmutation, Gnosticism, and uh, meditation, yoga. So the lunar ray pertains to Gabriel relating to the moon. Uh, Relating to preconception, uh, fertility, growth, the tides, lunar influences, maternity, birth, growth. Those refer to the angels of the lunar ray, which are governed by Gabriel. And Yesod relates to Gabriel. We have uh, the Mercurian ray relates to medicine, philosophy, um, medicine, philosophy, science, governed by Raphael. So the angels of medicine who heal many sick patients in the internal planes uh, follow the angel Raphael. Mercury, Mercury. Mercurial science, hermetic science, philosophy. The Venusian ray, governed by the angel Uriel, is the arts, love, compassion, music, flowers, poetry, art, literature, things of that nature. The angels of uh, that ray follow Uriel.
3: That's Uriel. Wasn't he assigned to earth?
1: Uriel relates to Venus, but Venus is the one who produces the blossoms and flowers in the earth. Okay. So there is that connection. The solar ray relates to the Mikael, relating to uh, high dignitaries, courts, uh, supreme officials. And it also relates to uh, the solar ray and the the Martian ray have a close relationship. The Martian ray relates to the police, karma, the law, severity, the warriors of Mars. The angels or Elohim that are the masters of strength. This uh, ray is governed by Samael, the angel of Samael. So uh, he's an angel of protection like Mikael. Mikael also relates to power. Because uh, the sphere Geburah in the Tree of Life is astrologically also relates to Mars, but also to the sun. So Geburah, the angels of uh, Mars and the solar ray, are, have a deep connection. The, the ray of Jupiter relates to politics. So comes to my attention the 14 Dai Lama who I suspect probably belongs to this ray because he's very involved with politics. Gandhi, many other individuals, even Jesus, uh, are said to have belonged to uh, the ray of Jupiter, which is governed by Zachariel. And then we have... Uh,
2: I'm sorry, I just wonder, is that why there's a Z with the sign of Jupiter on top? It looks
1: like a Z, yeah. Because of Zacharyel. Because yeah. the letter, Hebrew letter Zain can, look, can be transposed and can be formed to look like a, the sign of Jupiter. Now, um, the last ray or feel relates of the ray of or relates to the angels of death, who uh, are responsible for helping the souls after they disincarnate. Also to uh, properties, fortunes, anything related to mortuary science, death yeah, relates to the angels Pluto, of. Is uh, it Pluto in here somewhere? Uh? Well, Pluto, yeah, is the Pluto we say is the kingdom of death, and relates to hell. So the inverted aspect of Saturn is that. Now, uh, there are positive... We're here we're speaking about the positive relationship. There's also seven demons related to the infernal aspect which we conjure with the conjuration of the seven by invoking these angels. And so, uh, as it says in the book of Revelation, how Christ manifests in these ways. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So, all of us belong to one of these uh, how rays. How do we find out which one we're from? There's a. There's a well, there's. Someone mentions one method. You raise your eyebrows, you count how many transverse lines you have over your forehead. Uh, I did read that. I, think That's I, think I have three. So some. I uh, well, technically, that should say you're from the ray of uh, Uriel. Because one line relates to the lunar ray. Two lines relate to the Mercurian ray. That
2: would be Saturn, correct?
1: No, it relates to Arts. The, ben, uh, yes,
2: that
0: would be Venus.
1: Venus. Venus relates to three, the third three lines. Oh, okay. So the fourth ray, four lines relates to Mikael. Five lines, the fifth ray relates to Samael. Six lines relates to Zahariel. And the seventh seven lines relates to uh, Orifiel. Yeah. Now the problem the pro- The problem the problem is if you're old and if you yeah. if if we have too many lines on our heads, it's hard to tell what now, personally, the way that you figure out your ray is by learning to meditate and going out of your body and then having experiences. Because personally, I've had many experiences about my ray and uh, things about my being that I learned from, from having samadhis in which Samuel was teaching me, this is your ray, this is where you belong. This is your, this is your path. And the way that I accomplish it, not that I'm special, but you know, I, I, just by practicing. By practicing you and by being consistent by practicing yoga, developing mysticism, and uh, following the Gnostic path, it's how you're going to find the the secret of your ray and how your what is the idiosyncrasy of your being.
2: Now, does it, can you start working with how the planets are being aligned and you know how astro, uh, astrology is work? Can is, can you work with that in some ways?
1: There's a astro- we teach astrology too, so how to read the stars to understand uh, influences in our life. We have a book available called Practical Astrology, which teaches about that. Now, one thing I want to note about the seven rays is that it's eternal. It doesn't change. When you're being emerged from the absolute and entered into the universe, that being, that spark, entered into one of the seven rays. It never leaves the ray. There's some people... Same ray. So even if we've had many different personalities under different zodiac signs even though we've uh, developed in certain ways in different lifetimes, different cultures, our ray is eternal. It never changes. So you take it with you all the way to the absolute and beyond. So uh, some people, there's some theosophists who are saying that a person can change their ray. It's impossible.
2: Is there a teaching within Gnosticism about always being, if you're a male, you're always a male?
1: No, there's always a, one a, one is not always a male and one is not always a female. okay. Because if you're observing your mind, you'll find that you have many feminine egos yes. and male egos. So, yeah, I mean, I've observed that in myself. Where did this come from? I'm not, a, I'm not a woman, but meditating on that, you can see that there's connections to past lives. So
2: is there a belief in a soulmate?
1: Yes. And we say in Kabbalah, our soulmate is Geburah.
2: So whatever your soulmate is, are you opposites no matter what lifetime you're in?
1: Not necessarily. And that's a very serious karma. Tchaikovsky experienced that. Well, he his male his closest male friend was his soulmate. They couldn't be together because to do that would have been a uh, crime. So uh, he he was a great master who suffered a lot because his soulmate, as he represented it in Romeo and Juliet, he couldn't be with her because she was in a ma- as a male body. What
3: happens with the homosexuals then? There's no polarity there. That's that's according to the
1: cultists. So they incarnate. Uh, so they just they're just. Like leaves, a lot of them are like leaves tossed in the wind, sadly. And many don't ever want, even consider changing.
4: Um, Is your soulmate the same in every single life, but you just have a different relationship? Soulmate? Yeah, like if you're married to someone and that's your husband or wife by law, were they your person in every... Like even if maybe once they were your son or once they were this, is that your soulmate?
1: Well, possibly. The way to investigate that is to... uh, Really, you speak to a master. Okay. The law of karma. And they'll tell you, oh, I mean, if you're married to a certain person, that means that you've probably known them for a long time. And then there's nothing new under the earth. But what's new under the earth is that by investigating, you'll see, okay, who, who was this person in my past lives? Mm-hmm. Different relationships, maybe. And when you
2: ask, ask a master, you're talking about internally?
1: Internally, yeah. Okay. But I want, like, I don't know. How I, how I ask this question? Like, do
4: you have one
1: Samuel so talks about soulmates okay. in, different, in different levels. He talks about uh, Geburah and Tifereth as soulmates. He also talks about, um, in his case, he, uh, the reason he fell was because he fell in love with a certain woman when he was a god already. And he fell, meaning he didn't control his sexual energy. He, he had sex with her and he fell. She was with him. She was, she was you could say, his, the first woman he was with even before Nitalantez. So, uh, it, which is his the wife he worked with in order to ri- rise upward. So there could be a variation. It depends on karma. of the person. Do with other women after Delantes? There was a, there was one woman he was with. Okay. Oh, he, he had certain partners before he married her, and uh, he uh, he uh, eventually after his wife of Lolante had to practice with another woman, which mm-hmm. uh, is mentioned, it's mentioned in uh, it's mentioned in his life story. So, uh, you know, what matters is this. Be with the person your God wants you to be with and follow your being. And nothing else matters. So your God will tell you to be with a certain person that you love and follow your heart and follow your inner God, the will of your being. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, karma is very painful and many people get into relationships and they break up, even if they're in a Gnostic relationship. And it can be very heartbreaking, but the thing is to follow the will of your God. And no matter what, you will be fine. So uh, the one who joins together marriages and dissolves marriages is the Lord. And we have to always obey the Lord. And you know, pray and hope that, that we, you know, we always be with a certain person in our life. And if, we're working, if both partners are working seriously and are sacrificing and really working in a marriage, then there can be change. And there can be solidarity. And the union is even stronger, depending on the work of the couple. Are well, there any other questions?
2: I have one. Um, I remember you showed me your, uh, your your charm, and I was looking for something similar. And I don't know, but there's one charm that was just like this. Um, yes. And it was made out of copper. Okay. And I, and, but it also said Wiccan on it. Yeah. So, again, my this... intuition told me no, but I still purchased it. And I'll be very honest... It seemed to harm me more than help me, so I stopped wearing it.
1: So the thing is, uh, you know, if you're dubious about the place, you buy things. Don't buy them from there necessarily. I mean, I don't buy, for places like that, I don't buy amulets because those get charged from the atmosphere of the place they're in. And uh, there's a way, you know, there's, a way you can, there's other places you can get pedic- the Gnostic pentagram and uh, there's a method to consecrate it, as we give in uh, the book, the Pisa Sophia Unveiled. In which you can bless any any pentagram you have, such as uh, this one, made of now, silver.
2: There's nothing bad if it's copper, is there? Because for some reason that told me something. I don't know why. Well,
1: you can get know. silver. Copper is fine, but you want to get a. Typically, you want to get a pentagram that has seven metals, oh, because the seven right. metals relate to the seven nervous systems or the seven planets. What do you mean seven? Metals? The seven metals are uh, for the lunar rate for the moon. There is quicksilver. Uh, quick For Mercury, there is Mercury or Quicksilver. And then uh, Uriel relates, the Venusian ray relates to copper. The gold relates to the sun, the Mikael. Iron relates to Samael, the fifth ray, Mars. Uh, Tin relates to Jupiter. And then uh, lead relates to um, Orifiel, the ray of death. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a big, big thing. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like a big (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, something like something like that. No, Is there, it's like, <laughs> it's uh, Is
2: there a store in Chicago that you would know of? That would I don't know be any stores,
1: I, but I could, I know people who I can get it from, so I, I can. No? Yeah, I can look at, look at, look into that and try to get some pentagrams for sale.
2: But you're also saying there's another process after that.
1: Yes. So in the Pistis Sophia unveiled, you can consecrate a pentagram, a amulet, and uh, it's in the very beginning of that book, the Gnostic Bible. But it explains it very in detail. Did you say it had lead
3: in there?
1: Yes, Saturn. No? Saturn. So the seven metals relate Saturn. to the seven rays. So each, so each metal is like the is uh, pertinent to one of the angels. Now I had an experience internally where I was told that that metal iron is the, the or he said the, my being told me the name Samael is a is like a metal. I reflected on that. Well, iron relates to Samael. So iron is like the nervous system of the planet Mars. So if you go to Mars, just like the Earth, or you go to Saturn, just like the Earth, but different different constitutions. So Mars is red because of the iron content. It has that predominance. It's the nervous system of the planet Mars. So Earth has all is a mixture, but the different planets relate to the different metals because that's the primary metal that relates to that, physically to that planet, but also to the energies of Christ manifested through that through those worlds. Because each archangel is um the life force of a planet. So all of us are connected to one of the rays to one of the angels. So the thing is to meditate and to discover what is our ray and to be guided internally. Okay, when you learn certain things about your ray, it's like some people ask me, it's like well why is it important to know my, my ray? Well I ask I ask and say, well why is it important to know about know your name, your your date of address your credit card numbers, your social security number, things that you consider important that that make things work physically. So spiritually speaking, when you know you're Ray, it's going to tell you about how to work spiritually. It relates to your inner divinity.